I want you to turn with me to the 19th chapter of Luke. Now, there's some reason that this chapter has just got me. I mean, it, it has for years. In particular, verse 10. So go ahead and look at verse 10. I'm not going to quote it yet. But it's just uh, really, really makes me think. Uh, this whole chapter does. Now, last week, we studied chapter 15. That was that, um, that those great, those three great back-to-back-to-back stories about lost things, ending up with the story that we discussed last week about a lost boy. Uh, the truth is here, uh, occasionally I'm called upon to, to eulogize or to lead, uh, to be the some kind of a leader in a funeral. And, and I, it, typically when you're thinking about those kinds of things, you're thinking about the measure of a life. And there's just no way, sometimes I'll say this, there's no way to measure a life in an hour or an hour and a half. There's just no way. If you take all day, you wouldn't measure a person's life in that way. Now, an accountant can calculate your wealth. Your boss can tell you what your contribution is to the organization. Your family and friends might tell you how much you mean to them. A doctor can assess your health. Um, a resume can detail your professional accomplishments. But which of these, if any of them, are really a measure of your life? Um, so we're going to meet a guy in the story today, in Luke 19, who began to assess his life differently after he met Jesus. Now, would you say that's kind of true of you? It's certainly true of me. What I value was different after I met Jesus. What is most important to me is certainly different after I met Jesus. What, um, even the way I order my life, those things around which I order my life are different after I met Jesus. And we're going to meet a little guy who does that today, who's going to change the way he looks at his life. By the way, in case I forget this, we'll be in Matthew 4 next week. We're still talking about Jesus' call, and we're going to talk about his call to the disciples next week in Matthew 4. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more background. Jesus is, in, in Luke's narrative here, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He's warned his disciples he'll be put to death, but raised to life again. I read one of these passages this week. Uh, they're in Luke 18 and 9.22 and, and, and 13.31. Uh, I read from, from, from Matthew's account another time where he tells them he's going away, but he's coming again. And I, when I read the rest of the story, I, I get it that they didn't understand this. They didn't catch it. They didn't, they weren't dialed in in some way. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that they remembered, oh yeah, he told us this was going to happen. So that's kind of the, the situation they're in. There are three accounts in close succession where Jesus interacted with individuals on the way to Jerusalem the last time. But these are three different people who sought him out. I find this really intriguing. The first was a, con a conversation with the man that we sometimes call the rich young ruler. Okay, the second one was involved a blind beggar 
The first man, the rich young ruler, seemingly had every advantage, followed every law of God. The second had nothing except the audacity to cry out, cry out Jesus' name. The surprising outcomes were flopped. The advantaged man departed disappointed, while the disadvantaged man, the blind man, received his request and became a follower of Jesus on the way. Isn't that interesting? Um, if you read carefully chapter 18 and 19, you'll be concerned that if you have wealth, can I really be a disciple of Jesus? I think today's example is going to help us deal with that question a little bit. Because he does talk about, after the rich young man in 18, he talks about how difficult it is for a person of wealth to follow, to become a disciple. And yet, in 19, we meet one who does. So, here we go. Um, I, I think it's really important we catch this. Now, um, these outcomes set the stage for a third meeting, and it's the one we're going to study today. The encounter is with a tax collector. Uh, some versions of the Bible call him a publican. People in every time and place grumble about taxes and tax collectors. Am I right? Go ahead and groan. Mm. You know, I worked on mine over the last couple of weeks uh, in, in um, some time that I had, and I'm, I'm still groaning. The Roman Empire had a practice of contracting for the collection of certain taxes. So they would not uh, set up a tax table. They would, they would um, contract with a person to get their money for them. They'd tell them how much was needed. Uh, here's the percentage that's needed. Uh, literally, the tax collector would bid for the job. And the winning bidder, the winning bid would then do everything possible to maximize taxes collected in order to maximize their own personal profit. So tax collectors were despised for two reasons. We're going to meet one today. First of all, they were, um, it was the unfair and burdensome taxes they charged to enrich themselves. And secondly, they were despised because they were seen as collaborators with the, collaborators with the Roman government and everybody hated that. So that's the guy we're going to meet. Okay, since Steve Blair is, is filling in for Tony this morning, I understand. John, can I get you to read? We're going to go to Luke 19. And if you'd read the first four verses, okay? Okay, now, my understanding is that in that day, I've never been to the Holy Land, so I don't know this, but if you have, maybe you can kind of put this in your mind. Um, uh, Doyle and Sally, you can probably think about this, but in the Valley of Jericho in Jesus' day had become very prosperous. So that's what goes in your line. Uh, it, was, it was fertile and verdant. Um, 
uh, it became kind of an oasis in the middle of this Jordan River Valley. Um, um, they, they, they exported a lot of dates from date palms right there. There were palm trees everywhere, evidently. And balsam wood. Now, when I think of balsam wood, um, I don't think of what the commentators describe as a sweet smell. They said you could smell the balsam wood um, um, there. I, I, I don't know what that's about. but that, So uh, I guess I suppose I think of pinion wood or some kind of wood that really smells good. And, and uh, they said there was kind of a sweet smell in the air because of that. Um, Jericho is about 3,000 feet lower than Jerusalem. So as they're going to Jerusalem, they've got quite a climb. And um, what you and I need to remember is that Jesus is headed on this climb for a cross. And he's headed for an empty tomb. But this little fellow we're going to meet today is there, um, has set up shop, and is a, is a citizen of this town of Jericho. Now, look at verse 2 and 3. What do we know about him? He's rich. Now, we got to catch that because, because it's, not, it's not that he's just hated, which he is. Um, he's kind of despised. We know that from context here. But it, it identifies him as rich. I just literally said, and he was rich in my Bible. But it also identifies his, um, his job. He was the chief tax collector. So... You could say he was not just the IRS guy, he ran the IRS. I mean, he, he, had, um, he was pretty connected here. He was the chief of the tax collectors in the region. He was wealthy. Uh, look at 1823. If your Bible's like mine, you can just look across the page. This is uh, the story of the, of, of the uh, rich young man. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So it's interesting that the Bible comments on both of these men as being wealthy. And uh, one of them is disappointed, and we're going to see today that this one, um, his story is, um, is um, uh, turns out with a much, much, much different. He was powerful, yet despised. Those are two words I read about him this week. Powerful, yet despised. And diminutive. I didn't say it. He was diminutive. He was horizontally challenged. Okay. Do what? It was short. Rhonda, on the way in, she said, you're going to talk about Zacchaeus today? I said, yeah. And she said, you know who I think of when I think of Zacchaeus? And I thought of the same guy, Danny DeVito. Okay, so this is Danny DeVito. Probably had a similar attitude to Danny DeVito, you know. Um, so it's interesting here that the Bible identifies him in this way. I think it's interesting. This is not the politically correct part of the Bible. Okay? He was short. He was uh, very wealthy. But despicably hated. Despised by the people around him. Now, think about that. If you've ever been the, um, the brunt of bullies or if the, if the crowd has been... Um, 
everybody's kind of going the same direction. You're not invited. That's what we're dealing with here. Okay, now, locals, as you look at verse 3, would not have made a way for him. In other words, as this crowd gathered, they'd all heard that the healer from Nazareth, the healer from Galilee, was coming through town, and they all wanted to get a chance to see him. Probably many, many of them wanted a chance to touch him and see if he could heal their problem, fix their problem. Okay, Zacchaeus had heard the same story. The problem is, can you imagine the bumps and bruises on Danny DeVito as he tries to jockey for position in the crowd among people that can't stand him? So they're not going to make a way for him to see. In fact, you know what, buddy? Go to the end of the line. Uh, that's kind of the attitude that prevails in verse 2 and 3, you, if you catch this. He was lonely. Probably no real friends. He was wealthy but not happy. I wonder, I didn't read this anywhere. Had he heard about Matthew? Was there some tax collector's guild somewhere? Yeah, you know. And at, at their continuing education meeting, somebody says, where's Matt? Well, he kind of retired early. What's up with that? He's following a preacher that has become known as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Had, had Zacchaeus heard that story? I don't know. I, all I know is he wanted to see Jesus. And he went to great lengths to do that. Jesus had earned a reputation for being the kind of guy who would befriend this kind of man. Can you think about that for a minute? He had learned, he had a reputation. It followed him around. It, it dogged him. He had, he had made this reputation for being the kind of guy who hung out with people like this. Uh, look at 12.1. Under those circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began saying to, the, to the, his disciples, first of all, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he, they're, they're just crowds surrounding him. Uh, look at 1425. Now large crowds are going along with him, and he turned and said to them. So his popularity is, is at its zenith right before the cross. And this little guy can't get in to see him because he's considered by the group as an outcast. Now, look at verse 4. Zacchaeus was desperate. How do we know? You ready for this? How do we know he's desperate? Powerful men don't run. People run to them. And yet in verse 4 it says he ran ahead. Powerful men don't really run. Grown men don't climb. Uh, unless your name is Obert. 
we still got to keep him out of trees. Grown men don't climb. Powerful men don't run. Um, it, it, interesting here, look at 1814. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a theme that's recurrent not only in Jesus' teaching, but in James's teaching. The idea that if you will humble yourself, you'll be lifted up. And Zacchaeus laid aside this persona of being powerful and wealthy and took a position of... Um, desperation here. I just want to see him. So I'm going to run ahead and I'm going to climb a tree. Um, a lot of commentators spend a lot of time in this story talking about what kind of tree it was. A sycamore fig tree. I have no idea. The fig trees I've seen you couldn't climb in. Um, um, Barclay talks about it being kind of like a spreading oak. Um, which has broad, low limbs. You've got to figure it's got to be something like that for this little guy to get up in it. So if you've got some insight on that, uh, I, I would love to hear it. But otherwise, it's a tree that's e fairly easy to climb, and he climbs up in it. Now, there's an announcement that's made. John, can I come back to you and let you read verse 5 and 6? How did Jesus know his name? He knows everything. Now, Dan and I started thinking, well, maybe Jesus knew the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little... <laughs> you know, he's humming the song on the way down the street. No, I don't think so. I, I'm not sure that song was back then. It was written just then. Yeah, it was probably written by somebody. Look at 520. Somebody go to 522 and read it out loud. Somebody else, if you would, go to um, 6 8, okay? 522 and 6 8. Who's, who's got 522? Thank you. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked him about it. Look at 6 8. Who will read 6 8? Minor characters in the Gospels are rarely named. And you would have to, <laughs> you'd have to really argue this is a minor character, okay? But his name is here, called out by Jesus. He calls a man by name whom he has never met. Ron and I were at dinner Friday night. We're at dinner Friday night, and this woman comes over to the table and says, Phil? <laughs> and I, th you know, I'm bad about not hearing stuff, and, and I, uh, so I'm thinking she's talking to somebody behind me, so I just kind of, Phil? No, ma'am, I'm not Phil. Oh, I'm sorry, you look just like him. 
I, I forgot what I said there. I have a very common face, I guess. Maybe. But, so Jesus didn't call him by the wrong name. Phil? You know? No, I'm Zach. No, he, a guy he'd never met, he knew his name. Dan, you called it. This wasn't any normal man. This was the God man. He knew lots of stuff. The smartest man who ever walked the planet. He knew things that other men don't know. And he knew this little man's name. And he called him by name. Do you know he knows your name? He knows your name. I, I can't tell you how many preacher meetings I've been to where they would walk up to, I had a name tag on, and they'd walk up to me, some guy that I'd introduced myself to 5,000 times, and he'd walk up to me and say, hi there, Steve, how are you? Good to see you again. Okay? I get it. But Jesus knows me by name. And he knows you. He has supernatural knowledge in that way, but he cares about you. Uh, this, was a, this was a supreme act of care, compassion, to say to this little guy. He didn't say, hey, pal, hey, buddy. I've got a, I've got a dear old friend that's now in heaven that I worked with on staff at a church in eastern Kentucky, and he literally, everybody in the county knew him, but he was terrible with names. And so when we'd run into somebody, he'd say, hi, brother, how are you? Hi, sister, how are you? And when they'd leave, you know, they'd talk to him for a minute, and they'd leave, I'd say, who was that? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> he knows you. He loves you in that way. He knows who you are. He knows Zacchaeus' plight, and he addresses him by name. Now, notice the end of verse 5 is pretty important here. He says, Zacchaeus, in my Bible it's in red, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Anything wrong with this? Anything kind of unusual about this? <laughs> he sure did, didn't he? Hey, I'm going to your house today. Jesus, the ultimate authority, but it was okay. He says, um, he becomes the inviter. The one with all the authority invites the needy. Last Friday night, Friday afternoon, late, got a phone call. Looked at my phone and recognized it. The last name was Rushing. So if you know Rhonda's family. And it was Ken's son, Kyler, who was, he, he's an insurance adjuster. He was coming through town. He was, said, I'll be there in about, he called me like at four o'clock, said, I'll be there about seven. Can we have dinner together? Uh, we absolutely loved having dinner with Kyler. We reminisced a lot. He ended up spending the night with us and uh, went on to New Mexico where he was going to be working for the next couple of weeks. But if I want to get to know somebody a lot of times that intimacy is built around a meal. 
at a restaurant or in a home. Uh, uh, that grin is worth a thousand bucks. I have no idea what you're thinking. Well, yeah, yeah, you did what? Yeah, uh, he's right behind me, by the way. Yeah. Don't say anything, Mom, he's right here. You're right, Mrs. Zacchaeus may not have been all that keen on this idea, but Jesus said it. Do you know that he invites you and me to dinner all the time? So, at the door, he's at the, we got to read the door passage. Somebody go to Revelation 3.20 unless you can just quote it. Cindy, you got it? Can I come eat with you? <laughs> That's an invitation of grace, guys. That's what goes in the blank. The one that everyone in the crowd wanted to be with. The one that everyone in the crowd wanted to go to dinner with. The one that everyone in the crowd would have said, uh, I want you to sit right by me. Pointed at the least liked person in the room on the street that day and said, Zach, let's go to your house, man. I'm having dinner with you. And it changed everything. You ever felt left out? I feel it occasionally. Sometimes I will say to the people in my office, you know, I think, this is back to junior high, I think somebody has put a kick here sign on my back. Would you guys check it? Uh, thank you, Dan. I feel much better now. You're invited. He's inviting himself into your life. And it, when it, he expresses it in the context of the church in Laodicea in, in, in the third chapter of, of Revelations, he says, uh, could we have dinner together? I want to know you better. Kids, how many times did Brian Clemens and I have lunch together? We got to know each other on a really personal level. A lot of times, just the two of us over the lunch table. One of the reasons I miss him so much. He invites you. And he invites himself to your home and into your life. Now, Cindy, can I come back to you and have you read 7 through 10? Um, look with me. Not everybody's happy. That's what goes in the, the line here. Not everybody's happy. Look at 5.30. The Pharisees and their scribes begin grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Look at uh, 7.34. Turn one page over. 
The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This guy fit both of those descriptions. Look at 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him, but both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It really, Jesus, you know, they, they start scratching their head and say, why would he eat with him? They're not happy about that. What's he doing here? This is not new. Zacchaeus was not liked by the crowd. And so in verse 8, I began to think of the question, when do you think Zacchaeus made this pledge? I'm going to give it all back. Okay, was it though? Think about it for a minute. It had to be right there somewhere. Okay, Jesus says, come down from the tree. I'm going to your house. And his immediate response is, okay, I'm giving it all back. Now, does he say it, all right? Does he say it uh, on the spot? From the tree. No, no. Does he say it on the way walking home with Jesus? You know, you know, sir, I have wanted to meet you ever since I heard about you. I'm not a good man, but I'm going to make it all right. Was it then or was it over dinner? I, I really don't know. I think that's interesting. Maybe, maybe you've got a theory on that. But it, for whatever reason, what's at play here is the power, the absolute sheer rocking power of acceptance. If you look at the, look at the passage here in, in, um, in verse 8, uh, uh, it says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions uh, I will give to the poor, and if, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, the word if put in there kind of makes it sound a little um, not strong. If, if I were to say to you, Doyle, I put a scratch on your Corvette. If, if I hurt you doing that, I'm sorry. Then my if is not good, okay? But in, my understanding is in the original language, the if in place really... Uh, is in a place of a confession. Literally, he's saying, okay, I did this. It, he is a, a non-NBA basketball player. You know, NBA basketball players don't raise their hand and say, I did it. They flop. Okay? He's saying, I did this, and I'm going to make it right just because I met you. Uh, let me give you a couple of references. We won't look at them because we're running out of time. But um, Leviticus 6, verse 4 and 5. And, um, and Numbers 5, 7. Both of them say, if you have willfully taken someone or defrauded, from, defrauded someone, you give it back plus a fifth. 1.2. What is he agreeing to pay back? 400%. Okay. I, I find this really, really intriguing. Um, he is going to make it right. So Jesus says, the words are in red in my Bible, today salvation has come to this house because he too, Zacchaeus too, is the son of Abraham. The idea here is that Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' restoration, his repentance. 
He has been reclaimed, this, young, this little man has been reclaimed for God's kingdom. He may be playing for the devil's team before he met Jesus, but he's not anymore. He's mine, Jesus says, and I dare anybody to say he's not. So, Jesus says something in 1910 that is incredibly important. If you're uncomfortable with the, with the concepts of being lost and found or saved and lost, this will be difficult for you. Uh, I've been in forums where they, they don't want to talk about the lost in this context. I'm just quoting the man, you know? He says, and what I believe is, you can put in your blank, this is Jesus, what I believe, at least one, one version of Jesus' mission statement. Uh, there are a couple of places where he says, this is what I came to do. I'm here because of this, his mission statement. It, it, does your organization have a mission statement? Mine does. This church does. We hear it a lot on Sunday morning in, in the context of sermons. Jesus' mission statement is right here. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, we hear a lot these days about seeker-friendly worship services and, and seeker-sensitive services. Do you know that Jesus never really said, you've got to make it really seeker-friendly, although I'm, I'm interested in that, because he's saying, uh, guess what, friends? Jesus says, I'm the seeker. He's seeking you. He's seeking little men hiding and uh, climbing up in trees who have no connection and no friends. Well, I, I, I really believe uh, this in Mark 10, 45, where he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Are the two places where he says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And I came to seek and to save that which was lost. What's your mission statement? It might ought to have something to do with his. Now, as we close out, let me just say, it just appears to me that there's, there are a couple of differences. Maybe one very, very important difference between the rich man in chapter 18 and the rich man in chapter 19. The rich man in, in chapter 18, if you'll look at um, uh, 1821, when confronted with the embodiment of goodness, holiness, Jesus. When confronted, when standing side by side with the embodiment of good. By the way, do you know in Old English, the name God is the good. Let that sink in when you're saying God is good all the time, all the time God's good, okay? He's the good one. He's standing beside the one who's the embodiment of holiness and goodness and he says, I'm good. In chapter 18, I'm good. All, I, got the, I got the top 10 covered. Isn't it interesting? If I had to say what 
Zacchaeus said around the dinner table in chapter 19. The difference is this man, who was not good and knew it, said, okay, Lord, I did it. I, I did it. Help me make it right. And so, he sets up Zach's tax return center in downtown Jericho. You know, starts hauling in, you know, drachma and and uh, uh, and uh, all those coinage. Stacks them in the back room. People come and say, "Dude, you cheated me." Yeah, man, I know it. I'm sorry. Here's four times what I cheated you out of. He might not have been as wealthy at the end of chapter 19 as he was in the, in the beginning of chapter 19. But I tell you what, he was a lot happier. He had lots more friends at the end of 19 than he had at the beginning of 19. And he had one all-important friend, an eternal saving, seeking friend that made all the difference in the world. From then on, Zach's identifier, who are you? I used to be a tax collector. Now I'm a friend of Jesus. <laughs> what a friend. If you ever sing, you know, we don't sing this song at church much anymore. But if you ever get a chance to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. I want you to think about this wee little man and a wee little man was he. Who for the rest of his life, after the seventh or eighth verse of, of Luke 19, could say. He could say it. What a friend I have in Jesus. All my sins and griefs to bear. You can say it too, because he's your friend. One of these days, the fact that you're his friend will be the only thing that matters for eternity. I hope you're ready for that day. Getting to know him today is the best way to get ready for that day.